0: Hey, welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Broker and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Joe Lalo. And I'm Andrea Pearson. For today's show, we're going to talk briefly about the Gartner hype cycle as a framework to think about where we are right now with ebooks and audiobooks and what might be coming next, technology wise, that we care about as authors or we should care about as authors. And we'll also muse a little bit on audiobooks specifically and whether they've reached a tipping point, whether you need to worry about increased uh, competition with audiobooks, and whether you should even jump into audiobooks if your ebook sales aren't that great yet. And we are going to finish with some of the craft questions we didn't get to on the protagonist show or the last time that we promised to catch up with the craft questions we didn't get to on the protagonist show. So they are coming. Um, before we jump into our topic, do you guys have any news that you'd like to share?
1: Sure. Um, I have been working on another in-between cool in the Book of Deacon for a number of years. It is the sequel to the prequel. So that's a guaranteed marketing bonanza, I'm sure. But uh, the problem I've had is I wrote it the way I wrote the first ones, which is to say it wasn't outlined. So it is now over 200,000 words and it still doesn't have an ending. And in fact, it's probably just about at the end of the second act. So I sort of permanently shelved it until I actually get around to planning how it's going to end. And It's going to be a set of chronicles as opposed to a, a single book, but this even the size is weird with that. However, I also ran out of short stories from my Patreon. So I decided to release, uh, the, the chunks of this as the Chronicles of the Red Shadow one at a time in Patreon. So that's just gone up. And it turns out if the people in Patreon who admittedly are fairly biased toward me can be believed, this would be a big hit if I eventually when I release it. So that's nice. Uh, I'll also be spending most of this, most of this month getting my short stories together for next year and planning my next series so it's going to be a a month that's low on word count but high on prep work so that's nice uh prep work makes my life easier in the future and also i've started tinkering with something again right now for the patreon but eventually i'll release it uh, it's what i call the open book project where i chronicle every single step to making a book from brainstorming to to uh, publication and I I just finished the third one, which involves setting up the Scrivener file. So I'm going to talk like literally every single step along the way I'm going to record. And I've been releasing that to the patrons as well. Uh, only three or four people have actually watched it. You get really good because I'm putting it on YouTube. I, I know exactly how many people viewed it. But all of them have had positive things to say about it. So I think if I produce this correctly, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to probably be able to make something useful for folks. I don't know if I'd try to monetize it at all. Probably not. Although, again. Yeah it's in Patreon. So technically it's already monetized, but yeah, I've been working on, on, on that sort of thing and more in the future, if it turns out to be the sort of thing I'm going to share wide.
2: That's awesome. Um, I just listened to our Patreon episode and I was like, yeah, my choice to not use Patreon anymore was good because it just overwhelmed me thinking about all the things I could be doing, but didn't have time to do. Um, yeah, I would absolutely love to get back into Patreon, but I would probably have to sacrifice one of my children for that to happen. And, currently not fully willing to do that maybe maybe you know give it another few months (laughs) um i'm still working on the dictation course uh and um thank you to everyone for answering answering my questions in the facebook group and then i'm also still editing stable heart midnight chronicles book five which i have been i have had time to do that which has been really wonderful um I am adjusting to a much slower rate of book work, but it still kills me not to be able to work on it every spare minute until it's finished, which is why I usually do. I usually just binge until it's done. And, um, I haven't been able to do that. And so I'm trying to adjust to that. And, um, one thing that Nolan and I are focusing on this winter is making sure we have lots of sun time, like last summer, last winter, because we went under quarantine at the end of December months before everyone else did, because my baby doesn't like to eat food. Um, uh we were not outside enough and it was a brutal winter for us and so this time we're making sure we have lots of sun time and you know living in the desert you think that we get lots of it already but utah is known for very cold winters so with the sun coming up at 8 and setting at 4:30 it's difficult to stay focused and optimistic um so we're heading south once a month with the sole purpose of relaxing and um, getting in some sun and letting the kids play. Uh, this past weekend's w- weekend was our first trip of the winter, and it was really great. Um, I've done more in the past several days than I did in the weeks leading up to the trip. So I don't know. My tip for listeners... Uh, If you live in cold, dark places, make an effort to either go somewhere warm for a couple of days or get outside in direct sunlight for 20 minutes. Um, It boosts your vitamin D, which leads to a lot of really good benefits that people you know, take for granted most of the time. And then it also just feels good, which leads to happier and more productive authors. And that is our goal. Um, um, Nolan is brainstorming an epic fantasy. He's going to be starting up writing again here soon now that he's passed the project management professional certificate. And he is working at work on getting his job there changed to a project management job. And so as he's not studying as much, we're both finding more time to write, which has been very, very awesome. So the end, off to Lindsay.
0: <laughs>
2: hey, you can also
0: get a sun lamp, put it next to your desk when you're on the computer. I have a friend that swears by those.
2: That's right there. <laughs> you, those watching, I have one of those right there. But it's not the same. It doesn't like warm your whole body and do that sun thing. Yeah,
0: but if you live someplace like Seattle, you're just not going to get much sun in the winter and stuff. Tanning beds also feel good if, you know, that whole skin cancer thing weren't an issue. All right. Um, so I actually, my news is not personal. It's just, uh, news. I got a chance to talk to Damon Courtney from Book Funnel. You've probably already heard the news, but they have their, they finally, not finally, not finally, like we've been waiting forever, but we have, but um, they've been working as fast as possible, but, um, they've put together an audiobook app and, uh, now are going to be supporting, they're doing the beta testing. Uh, For you can put your whole audio book up there, and I'm not sure where the pricing is yet. I know it's going to be more expensive than just e-books. Uh, the bandwidth. Uh, I can just imagine how much bandwidth they're going to eat through having people downloading these huge audiobooks. So perfectly understandable. And I am in the beta and I uploaded one of my audiobooks and gave it to some of my Patreon people to try out. So far, so good. You know, there was a little feedback and I passed it on to Damon, but nothing major. It sounds like people are like it. It's sort of like an alternative to the Audible app and they can get the ebooks and everything that you put up through pay, uh, through book funnel. So that would be, that's something we've all been waiting for and an opportunity to much more easily sell audiobooks direct now. If that's something you want to do, or just offer them if you're producing your own as a tier for your Patreon people. Uh, the other news is again, you, this has been out for a couple of weeks, so you've probably heard it already, but, uh, Amazon now allows you to suggest a couple of your books. For Amazon Kindle deals, that's in your KDP dashboard. Just go poking around and you should find the offer option. I usually get invited to participate in some of these each quarter in the various country stores. And it's usually really random. They're like, we want to, you know, drop book five to one ninety nine. And I usually say, yes. I'm just like, okay, uh, we'll see. It's not like it's selling a whole lot in India anyway, or, you know, I look a little more carefully at the ones where they're actually offering you money, uh, to make it to Amazon prime read, you know, to make sure that the, uh, that, that, that's been both spectacular for me and barely moved the needle so it kind of depends but um as far as will they actually pay attention to what you nominate for yourself uh probably the jury's still out but i did you know shortly after that they sent me an invitation to be in a couple of their uh, daily deals or kindle deals whatever they were there's all different things (laughs) sometimes you don't know what it is exactly you're going to get But they did pick one of the titles that I had nominated, a book one in the series. So hopefully that means that they will actually pay attention to it. And, you know, it does seem like they're surfing through the indies out there and trying to find stuff to promote. So always good if somebody wants to promote you.
2: Yes, Andrea, I see your hand up in the corner there. (laughs) Do you do you know where people go to submit it? Because I'm on their website right now and I'm not seeing anything. That's something I'd love to know. It's in the KDP dashboard. Is that where you are? Let's see yeah,
0: if will come up quickly yeah, enough for I
2: clicked on I, promoting and all that, and didn't see anything. But
0: well, we will. Ha- I think it might be there's then the series manager. Um, I don't yeah, know. I this know I might be something they're rolling out slowly too. I've uh, heard everybody I've heard has tried it. Look under marketing. I think it's uh, yep. Nominate your eBooks is under marketing. Oh. It does say it's a beta. Okay. All right. As we now stumble through this live <laughs> on the air, for, you, for everybody's sake, to prove that it's a thing. <laughs> All right. And on with that news, we'll kind of go into our main topic here. So the Gardner Hype Cycle, I'm sure you've heard of it, even if you don't know it by name. It does get some criticism, and I'll link to the Wikipedia article, article in the show notes. But I just thought it might be useful to think about for our discussion we're going to have on audiobooks and also for... I don't know about you, but it seems like there's some new technology we're supposed to pay attention to every year as authors <laughs> in addition to it, in other things. And you may be wondering, like, do I need to pay attention to this? Am I going to have to jump into this? I'm going to be way behind if I don't. So thinking about that, first, here's an explanation. Uh, basically, the hype cycle is just a way to understand the adoption of new technologies and hopefully keep you from going all in on some new thing before it's ready for prime time. So there are five phases. First one is there's a technology trigger some new technological breakthrough kicks things off you may remember like the late 90s oh we're going to have something new called ebooks and with this technology trigger there may not even be a usable product yet but the media gets super excited about it and starts talking it up i remember about that same time we cloned the first sheep and it was going to be like tomorrow you know we're going to have all the answers and uh, nobody's ever going to get sick and die again (laughs) because we're going to know everything about the human genome but um, the second phase is the peak of inflated expectations, where people are experimenting and doing things, and it's super exciting. But at this point, there may be more failures than successes, but super exciting. you know. Again, the media often plays a, a role in kind of hyping things up. The next phase is the trough of disillusionment. These are the best names, guys. <laughs> um, and at this point, interest fades as the experiments and implementations fail to deliver. A lot of those who are working on the new innovative thing give up on it. Um, this would be kind of like with ebooks, we were all excited ebooks. yay, and it turns out it's just a PDF file that you have to read on your computer. Not so great. And uh, next stage f- five, no stage four is the slope of enlightenment so at this point often years later half the people may have forgotten about the new technology but some companies have still been working on things and we start to get second and third generation products uh, that do not suck maybe the kindle e-reader for example think about how much later that came than the actual pdf ebooks you know were a thing Uh, and then uh, so, you know, at this point, it's actually becoming useful. And then we've got the last phase is the plateau of productivity. Now that we've actually got usable products, mainstream adoption takes off, right? We get the Kindle store, we get more e-readers, e-books are everywhere. We, Those of us authors are finally able to have a career self-publishing. And we kind of look back and like, this was the most obvious thing, you know? why Why didn't this just become huge right away? But that's sort of the cycle and... I feel like the, you know, we're going to talk about audiobooks, like I said, but I feel like it's useful to kind of keep that in mind as you hear about new things, uh, in the news and, you know, or on other podcasts that, um, things that may be useful to authors one day, but it can be hard at this point to know, like, what you should pay attention to and what do you really need to, like, incorporate in your author career, your author business you know, like maybe four years ago, I remember virtual reality was like this huge thing where I'm like, Oh man, are we going to have to like program our stories into virtual reality? Cause nobody's going to read books anymore. And then two years ago, I feel like it was like blockchain was kind of blockchain. This, this is going to change everything. Blockchain that, and, and nobody knew what blockchain was exactly <laughs> except for the Bitcoin people. Um, but you know, I think then we kind of got that. We're probably in that trough of disillusionment with that right now. And uh, maybe now AI is becoming a new thing that you're hearing about all the time. And it can be hard to see what's really practical and what you want to pay attention to as an author, you know, like should I actually put my time into this stuff at this point? So I think it's good to remember that most of these things take five, 10 years or more before they get to where they are really obvious ways that they can, they can add to your productivity or they're something that if you don't adopt them, you may fall behind. So unless you're one of those innovator types who is eager to try all the new things, I think you can just kind of keep most of this stuff on your radar and you know, watch, wait, wait until you see somebody that's actually, you know, probably there'll be new software and things that come along that make them useful. And at that point, you can think about jumping in, you know, unless you're dying to. But like I said, I kind of wait. I I don't know if Joanna Penn's listening to this podcast, but I like that she's following all the AI stuff and a lot of the future success. So I'm just like waiting as soon as Joanna's like, "Yep, I made you know five thousand bucks last month with my AI self that I uh, did this audiobook." I'm at that point. I go, okay we kind of get into prime time, you know, maybe this is time for me to invest my time into it and actually pay attention to it and, and implement it. And it's good to remember that even if you wait until kind of the innovator, early adopter, people jump into it, you still have plenty of time to like get on board and you're probably still going to be early if you were just, if you were paying attention to it. Um, so there's, there's usually way more time than you think there is before you really need to pivot and, and adopt some of this stuff. But like I said, don't ignore it. <laughs> Be aware, pay attention. If you're listening to podcasts, you're, you're doing awesome. Um, just a quote. To kind of remind us, this was actually back in the 60s or 70s, I think. A guy named Roy Amara said, we tend to overestimate the effect of a new of a technology in the short run and underestimate the effect in the long run. So, you know, I think that's kind of why you have this hype up stuff followed by that period of disillusionment. And then 10 years later, it was like, oh my gosh, that was a really awesome thing. It just kind of took a while to mature and become really useful. So before I bring this over to audiobooks, do you guys have any thoughts on any of that stuff that I rambled on for 10 minutes on?
1: <laughs> um I, I will say that, like as you said i was aware of this i didn't know it had a name but uh i was mostly aware of it because of the, of the way that my friend and i uh, interacted with it i'm into technology so i always had that moment of excitement when i hear about a new thing often you'll hear about a new battery technology like every three days it's amazing how often this revolutionary new battery technology is coming and that it doesn't show up until it did with lithium ion but uh my friend is always like, it's going to be tomorrow. He's always absolutely certain the thing is coming along. And I remember when I was in college, he was excited about OLED screens. And he's like, these are going to be super bright, super contrast, and I'm going to love them. And then, you know, a couple of years later, he's like, you can get an OLED TV for $11,000. And I'm like, great. Uh, and now, nearly 20 years later, his current monitor is OLED. It took 20 years for that thing that he was super excited about to finally land. And I was—I learned early on, like I'll—I'll I'll, I'll just wait. The only one that I sort of fell into was uh, uh, multi-touch screens. I was aware of multi-touch screens like again, probably six years before they actually showed up on the iPhone, and I was waiting that whole time because they were so cool. But yeah, it, it's good to be able to sort of recognize where we are in a, in, in software just if for no other reason to keep yourself from getting your hopes up.
2: I found my mute button. I'm so proud of myself. (laughs) Um, so I'm not an adapter of early technology. Um, my whole family is like my dad and all my brothers. They're like those, they get the first thing as soon as they can. They're very excited about new technology. And, and I was a very slow adopter of even smartphones and things like that. And I keep my smartphones for years. So this one's like a four year old phone. Um, it's just i it's not huge to me um and and one thing that we've discovered my my brothers they do tend to be pretty pretty good about picking technology that's going to last other than my one brother buying hd uh, DVD player. And then Blu-ray ended up winning. And he's like, oh, dang it. I've got this stupid thing. And anyway, so de- despite being an optimist, when it comes to new technology, I'm actually pretty pessimistic. <laughs> like, I'm just going to wait and see what happens with that. I'm also pretty stingy with money. Um, new technology generally costs a lot of money. So for example, TVs now that my friend just bought a 75 inch TV for 40, 450 bucks. And like, you know, even if, three, two, three, four years ago, those were over a thousand. And so, like, you wait a little while and you can get what you want, you know, and not have it die all the time. So I usually wait for the second or third or even fourth generations before buying something. And then with audiobooks, I waited because royalties um were going to our medical bell bills. I mean, in the ten years my husband and I have been married, I've had eleven surgeries. And so my royalties have kept me alive pretty much. Um and then keeping food on the table. And then also I was waiting for the AI narrators to catch up. So once I got to the point where I felt like I was making enough money on my eBooks, so I was like, but AI is happening, right? I mean, it's happening. I mean, <laughs> sorry, Joanna. Joanna says it's happening. And Jim Kukral said it's happening. And so I didn't do anything about it. And um I kind of I kind of wish and kind of regret I waited as long as I did. Um I could have had audiobooks published a lot earlier and during a time when my ebooks were doing really well and then my audiobooks would have done better or would be doing better currently. Um but I mean everything happens for a reason. My two audiobooks did get selected to be I mean to be produced, you know, by the Find a Way Select Author program with Scribd and all that. So I mean I don't regret it. I just I kind of well, I just said I regret it. So maybe I I regret not doing it earlier. And I regret waiting for AI technology to take up, take, goodness gracious, English is not my language today, Um, to catch up. And I do have more thoughts on that later. So I'm going to pass it back off to Lindsay.
0: All right. Yeah, what's funny is about the time you're completely disappointed and like this is never going to come. It's like, oh, it comes. And then you're caught off guard. Um, So let's talk audiobooks a little bit more. So we had someone in the group who wanted to, you know, kind of hurry up and make some because he'd heard they were really taking off now and you don't want to be too late. And my suggestion is always to, unless you're going to record them yourself and there's basically no cost at that point other than maybe getting a, a setup, some equipment, is to wait until your ebook sales are good enough that you can easily afford the production of audiobooks. They're a lot more expensive to have produced. And we've actually got a much crummier cut on sales, at least from ACX. I mean, 40% uh if you're exclusive with them 25% if you're not and that's not of the book price that's of what they get from probably their credit program so i end up getting maybe 3 or 4 dollars per audiobook sale which is the same as i get for a 5 dollar ebook basically and it was how much does an ebook cost <laughs> a lot less than an audiobook to produce so it really takes a while to break even with uh even with a reasonably good well selling ebook uh, audiobook um also I don't think audiobooks are quite like a new technology that where you're going to be left behind if you don't adopt it. If you focus on growing your fan base, you're always going to be able to sell the audiobooks or you're going to be able to sell the audiobooks anytime when you get around to doing them. Once you have a fan base, you're not really worried about how much competition there is in the ebook space or the print space or the audiobook space because you've got people to sell your art to that are just they're just waiting till you have them ready. So uh, now if audiobooks at some point turn out to be some major new way for authors to get discovered and take off, which, you know, it's possible this could happen with Spotify if they open it up to indies to be allowed to submit their audiobooks. Maybe, uh, some of their algorithms that help you discover music will help you discover a new audiobook by an author you might like. But, uh, we're not there yet. As far as I know, they're not even open to, uh, to us. <laughs> So, uh, at that point, it might be worth it, but I very rarely hear of someone who starts selling piles of audiobooks who wasn't already selling huge in ebooks for an indie author or huge in tradition, in print for a traditional author. We are getting, m- getting more promote or more options for promoting audiobooks. Like if we go through Find Voices or Sell Direct, like with the new book funnel, uh, option where we can set our own prices. So things are changing a little, but I still don't think you need to hurry. Be really wary about doing the royalty splitting because that's going to lock you into seven seven year commitment of exclusivity with ACX and Audible. And also, I think a lot of people don't realize that if your ebook is not selling well, most of the narrators are going, uh, uh. I'm not wasting my time on something like that because they've probably been screwed in the past where they've put however many hours, maybe you know, twenty hours into recording it, what becomes a Six, seven, eight-hour audiobook, and then they make pennies, and they're like, "Okay, I'm I'm not going to do that again. I'm only going to do a book with a lot of reviews that's uh, doing well." Um, have some more thoughts on audiobooks and whether we've reached the tipping point. But do you guys want to chime in on that first?
1: Uh, yeah, I definitely agree that audiobooks are sort of a a level two of your career sort of product. I've done audiobooks both by self-producing them and by having them done traditionally and the self-produced ones, even when the books were doing well enough to be my primary earners, never really wowed me with the income. I don't think the longer of them has paid for itself yet Uh, and it's been uh, probably eight no, six years, about six years since it came out. And, and that, uh, uh it, to be fair, that one did release a lot after the, uh, the initial book, but it was still one of my better selling books when it was out. The trad published ones are doing okay. Uh, but most of them have earned back, but the, I, I, uh, I always prefer a smaller advance and, uh, just so that i start getting a regular paycheck sooner. So it doesn't take much for, it only takes a couple hundred bucks to a couple hundred sales to, uh, to earn back my, uh, my advance. But, even then i, I prefer that you, like if you can get picked up for a trad uh, publisher for audiobooks by all means except chances are if you're at the stage of your career where a trad publisher is looking at you you're also at the stage of the career where you're self producing audiobooks like i was so either way it's 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 a later in your career sort of situation uh the only thing that i would say that i wish uh, I, w- uh, I wish had happened is uh, I my two self-produced audiobooks are not the beginning of the series. It's a book four of a series that somebody had uh, had traditionally produced the first three and then didn't want to continue. And also a uh, sort of a spinoff prequel, uh, or no, it wasn't prequel, it's was a spinoff book that is not, sorry, a, se- a series starter. So I, the only two books that I have sort of full promotional capacity with are two books that I can't really promote uh, because they're not series starters. So, again, if you're going to if you if you're going to dip your toe into self producing, maybe at least self produce the beginning of one of your own series. Uh, but even then, I think if everything had been done been done traditionally, I would be better off in the long run.
2: Um, yeah, I, I agree with what Lindsay said. Um, until audiobooks are the way people find out about new books instead of print and e-books, they're not going to be the best way for authors to get discovered, and therefore. Um, sacrificing food for yourself and your family to make an audiobook shouldn't be a priority. Um, and basically what I mean by that, um, publishers release print or ebooks in conjunction with audio. That's the standard. So yes, there is some deviation from it, but in general, if there's an audiobook out there, there's also an ebook or a print book. Um, if that were to switch around so that audio was the number one thing released with print and ebook being optional or secondary, then I think we'd start seeing a lot more authors discovered via audiobook. So they'd put out an audiobook. Someone would find it would recommend it to other readers and audiobook downloads would soar. And then maybe they'd think about doing an ebook and a print book, et cetera. So if like the, if, if general, that's how things were run, like, if all of a sudden the traditionally or the publishing world decides to go audio first. Um, or like Lindsay said, the Spotify thing. Um, since that's not the case, my recommendations are along the lines of what they both have said. Wait until sales of the printer ebooks are good enough to cover the cost of the audiobooks without it hurting you financially.
0: All right, great. And <laughs> great that you agree with what I said. I always appreciate that, Andrea. <laughs> um but I did want to mention, I will say with my own audiobooks this year is Probably been it has actually posi- uh, positively been the most uh, I've made from ACX this year. I'm kind of a like Joe in a situation where probably my best selling audiobook or definitely my best selling audiobook series are with a publisher, so I get an even smaller cut. So it's it's hard for me to measure those right aside beside the ACX books that I've produced myself. Uh, and this this year too, I went into find a way, so I'm getting that only 25% on the ACX books. But even so, it's the most I've made. There this year. So, you know, it, it's hard to say just by one person. Are we, uh, have we reached a tipping point? Are audiobooks really taking off? Uh, this was a really weird year. Also, I think like if your sales went down this year, I wouldn't be surprised at all because so many audiobook listeners are people who do it commute in the car and a lot of people have not been commuting this year. And so. It's a hard year. I'd kind of wait and see. There might be a bit bit more of a boom, things going back to normal in 2021. Um, We'll see. But uh, like I said, I did want to touch on whether or not we've reached the tipping point in audiobooks because I either hear people say that audiobooks are getting huge and uh, other people, usually authors, (laughs) say, well, my sales are Pretty low compared to my ebooks, and I don't make that much. So they don't seem that huge yet. So, which is right. It, it usually seems to be the industry professional organizations that say they're really getting big. They're kind of reporting that we've had double digit growth in audiobook sales each year for the last 10 years. But you always have to ask well, starting with what? Because until everything went digital about 10 years ago, almost nobody except for libraries purchased audiobooks because they were something like $75 a pop for your 20 CDs or your 20 tapes. Uh, I I know I, I had never owned an audiobook until they came out on digital. So my feeling is that kind of if we go back to the hype cycle and, and look at audiobooks on that, we're probably easing out of that slope of enlightenment and into mainstream adopt, adoption. Like the tech is there. The tech has been there. That hasn't what been, what's been holding things back. We've got easy to use apps to play audiobooks on our phones, but all through the 20 teens, we had these artificially high prices set by Audible since they've kind of been basically a monopoly or very close for a long time when it comes to audiobooks. So. In a world where people have been, you know, gotten used to paying $10 a month for unlimited video content from Netflix, for unlimited music from Spotify barely anybody who's been willing to pay $30 for one digital audiobook. Not that many people. Uh, even the credit system that gave you an audiobook for $15 a month is expensive in comparison with the other digital entertainment options. People just don't want to pay big money for digital products. Like it's not something you can physically own and keep. And you always have this feeling like you're kind of just leasing it. All it takes is the format to change 10 years down the road and you've got a worthless uh, file on your computer. And, and I feel like most people now don't even care if they own things. In digital, you know, it's a little different. Again, like a signed paperback is a special thing that a person may want to own, but a digital audiobook, if that stuff is always there in some subscription model, they may, you know, they're not going to want to pay big money for that. So I think Audible ha- has known this and has been feeling pressure to compete, and that's probably why they've been advertising their ridiculous return policy of a year to return an audiobook lately, and they've also started uh, started Audible Plus where at the lower end you get a subscription to borrow audiobooks and at the higher end for $15 you can borrow unlimited audiobooks and get a credit to buy one each month. And all this is to say that the prices are finally getting either forced down through competition uh, or it's just we're getting more opportunities ourselves as indie authors if we don't go exclusive to either sell direct or put them out on like Findaway Voices and going into all the stores and we get to choose the prices so we are probably going to put some downward pressure on prices of digital audiobooks just uh, there are so many indie authors kind of the same as ebooks and and we'll see if traditional publishing and audible resist or if they give in or if we all end up on some subscription model you know and it's whether or not authors are going to be compensated fairly with the subscription stuff i don't know uh, i've not bothered with direct sales when it comes to ebooks but it is something i'm considering more strongly now that book funnel has the audio book option i would probably do something like a whole series bundle and just be like, Hey, this is 50 bucks, you know, take it, <laughs> take it if you want it, or you can buy them individually in your favorite store. And, you know, if they did that, I would earn way more than like, if they bought the six audiobooks in the series at Apple or, uh, audible for, you know, 999 or 1999 or through the credit program. So definitely something I'm going to be thinking about trying out in the future. Uh, maybe it's time to finally <laughs> give the direct sales a thought. Um, do you guys have any more thoughts on audiobooks and kind of have we made that tipping point?
1: <laughs> uh, audiobooks are definitely, they've been around for a while. Like they've been around long enough for me to have called them books on tape until about six months ago. <laughs> but uh, uh, I'll agree that virtually every adult and most children now have devi- multiple devices that can with a few taps give them access to a full audiobook with no must or fuss. So we're definitely looking at a product that's fully mature and is now, Convenient, and convenience is really the thing that we're waiting for in any given new technology. Uh, that said, it could also be the beginning of a new hype cycle. What with uh, Bookfunnel getting the audio book direct sale game going, there's we might be looking at the beginning of of a, you know people talking about a gold rush, a gold rush of of, uh, of indies direct selling and just indies taking over in, in audio. And when you were talking about how audio, you know, you'll hear people talking about audio books are booming. I went to book expo America a couple of times and I sat in on like the keynotes and it's hilarious how much the industry talks about the industry without talking about the Indies as a part of it. Like I I sit there and they'll talk about, here's what the numbers look like if you exclude independent sellers. And like, so very, very often they'll just be talking about numbers that completely chop out what has steadily become the lion's share of, of of the market. But, um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, It's entirely possible. Like you talk about a subscription model. I think we could be at the beginning of something big if all of a sudden a ton of indies start uh, uh, self-producing and then somebody gets together like an aggregator that helps you find all the self-produced audiobooks and suddenly there's a weird hybrid direct sale storefront situation going on. Like I can foresee a dozen different ways in which audiobooks could become the next big thing even though they've been out for decades.
2: Yeah, that would be actually really cool because I mean, if you had like a review system in place, then even if they are just straggler random indies, if there's reviews, then people would be more likely to trust because nobody wants to download um, somebody's book that they wrote and had their, you know, their sister edit and then they put up with a homemade cover, you know, but if it's something that's professionally done, which indies are very capable of, and if, you know, and if uh, there's a bunch of indies and it gains, you know, gains hype and all of that, then I think that could work really well. Um, so one of our listeners, you guys got to foot it. Okay. Foot the bill for that, get that going. (laughs) Um, but so here are my thoughts while I was reading Lindsay's comments. And then again, Joe's, um, the industry is due disruption and they've been talking about this for a long time. Like a lot of, a ton of influencers, a lot of people that run podcasts, they've been talking about how it is due for disruption. Um, and it's either going to come through um, people dropping audiobooks entirely, which is not likely. A lot of people have to listen to audiobooks like when they're on the road. Um, narrators dropping their prices also not as likely, though not completely improbable or AI narration stepping up. Um, which is more likely, but there are a lot of hoops stopping that from happening, such as narrator unions, distributors not allowing them to be on their th- their platforms, things like that. Um, and then there might be another way for it to happen, like if some technology came around that made recording and editing much, much easier and faster, maybe even automatic. So for every finished hour of work, they're, would be maybe only 1.5 hours of work and therefore paying a narrator fees that would make some lawyers blush wouldn't make sense. And so narrators would, you know, supply and demand, they would drop their fees to, um, you know, to be more competitive. Um, but okay. So narrators make their money from distributors and authors and distributors make their money from narrators and authors. So if narrators put pressure on distributors to ignore technological advances, those distributors are likely to listen. And, and I'm, kind of talking from things that I've heard that have happened in the last year. Um, I don't think I have permission to share it, but, um, if narrators go on protests, there won't be much to fill the void because of the hoops set up by the companies themselves. So that will work for a little while, you know, perhaps a long while, um, at least until AI becomes cheap and good enough for others to flock to it in droves. And until there's an app popular enough that accepts AI narrated books, which won't happen until AI becomes so good that almost no one can tell if it's not a real person reading the story. Um, from my vantage point and from talking to various narrators, we're really close to that disruption now. Um, I know narrators have gone already gone on strike from various distributors because of r- rumors that that distributor was going to start accepting AI narrations. Um, the problem with all of this is technology doesn't care about incomes and feelings. It, it really just doesn't. Um, someone somewhere is going to do something that people and companies won't be able to ignore, such as Kindle and traditional publishers. So, I'm, um, what am I saying? Not that you should wait for AI like I did for years. Um, and even though it feels like it's just around the corner, that doesn't mean it is. What I'm saying is this wait for AI until you have sufficient royalties to have a good area to do the job for you. Uh, you won't regret it. And I don't do it. I don't regret having done that way at all. Um, and then you can have AI finish off the series if you choose to, or redo the series if it's cheaper. Um, really, though, I see a lot of potential in reducing the workload of narrators and producers. If the work represented somehow becomes an hour of work for every hour of finished product, I can see, your, see narrators charging even as low as 30 or $40 an hour to maintain a competitive edge. And there are people out there cringing right now as I say that. <laughs> uh, see, my
0: thought with all of this is more, I'm thinking are they reaching a tipping point in as far as more and more people are listening in and so we can make more and more money and it becomes not a big deal to produce an audiobook for maybe $4000 um so you know with the ai stuff i joanna's ears are going to be burning on this episode but you know i think she's right with that that it'll be an option where when it's available You'll be able to do that inexpensively, and then maybe you have a premium product where you had a human narrator do it uh, for people who really want that human touch. Uh, it, it will be a you know a big ugly thing. Uh, I agree with you. I, I know narrators who are certainly very concerned about the way things are going, as many people are in many industry, including authors. We've already got a you know a lot of it, especially nonfiction articles and stuff can really just be written by <laughs> by a computer. So we'll we'll see where all that stuff is going. I. I do think we're seeing going to see more and more adoption. So, like, even though it feels like they've been hyping for a long time, you know, audiobooks are getting huge, huge, huger. The, I th- I think there's still a ways to go, and um yeah, we'll we'll have to see. Again, wait until you can afford it. Don't go into huge debt in order to do this, and don't, you know get locked into a seven year contract that you can't get out of but because you're forced to do a royalty split. I would just focus on really get your first series out really, you know, with ebooks and paperback and really focus on building up a fandom. And then again a lot of the, then a lot of this becomes something you don't have to worry as much about because it's it's just some of the money you're making each month from your e books. You can put into the production of the audiobooks. And hopefully we will continue to be able to make, or we will be able to make each audiobook sale more money in our pockets as indies. And, you know, because with ebooks, we've kind of felt it's pretty fair. 70% is pretty, pretty good, especially compared to traditional publishing. But with the audiobooks for the last few years, it really hasn't been very good. So. Uh, if we can make seventy percent on like a nine ninety nine audiobook, that's pretty good. You're you're going to make your money back pretty quickly, even if you do pay for a narrator and all that. All right. Any final thoughts on audiobooks before we jump into our questions?
2: I do. I just one quick comment. Um, I agree. I agree with you. Like, um, the hype. It's it's something that we've been hearing for a very long time. It's not like it's um I don't know. Um. People say every year that audiobooks are doing bigger than they were the year before, but I don't know if that's going to ever lead to that tipping point that that whole, it's going to be making authors so much money that they, you know, that they run, are able to run out and do audiobooks. Um, yeah, a $4,000 audiobook. It's just, I just feel like that's still really far away for most authors in general. Um, and, the majority of people read ebooks and print books. And unless that changes somehow where ebooks die or print book dies and everybody, and most people change to audiobooks. Audiobooks, I see it still being some of, of a luxury item for authors where ebooks are necessary, but audiobooks are something they have to budget for and they don't do automatically. I just, I don't know that I even see that changing. Even if I don't know, maybe if AI becomes a thing, I don't know. My scattered thoughts in response. <laughs>
0: Right. Well, I'm just saying if we are suddenly able to keep twice as much from the sale of each audiobook, we need to sell a lot fewer of them in order to pay for the production cost. So that may be possible with uh, direct sales and, and even Find a Way it gives you more, uh, I believe, a bigger cut than uh, ACX does. So we shall see. I, I do feel like. I don't know. I only cannot look at my own habits and I've moved way away from eBooks. I listen to almost everything, uh, whether it's nonfiction on YouTube or audio uh of fiction. So I have to be like, Really, it used to be the time I read all the time is now my writing time, so that's why I like the audio stuff because you can do it everywhere. But you know, it'd be interesting to know how much of audiobook sales comes from people who are long haul truckers, or because I know I have quite a few. Uh, even my Ruby books, it was hilarious—the uh, the sci-fi romances with all the audiobooks. I had some male trucker fans <laughs> would email and say they really enjoyed them. Um, yeah, that would be. I, I don't know if there's any surveys on that out there, guys, but it'd be curious. I'd be curious to know how much is from people commuting. How much is from uh, people in trucks, especially since we're kind of not that far off from self-driving cars, at which point you have more than audio as an option. Suddenly you can watch TV or play games. So that'll be something to think about a few more years down the road still. But it is interesting times that we live in. All right. Let's get these protagonist questions that we've been teasing people about for like two months out. Uh, Joe, do you want to ask the first one?
1: Sure. The first one is from Roland. With an ensemble cast that gathers over the first two books of the trilogy, what's the best way to introduce the additional POVs? In this case, there's one main protagonist and four supporting characters with their own arcs.
2: And I'm going to hand this off to Joe and Lindsay, because it deals with stuff I don't write.
1: (laughs) Okie doke. Uh, So I always have the uh, the POVs accumulate along the way, and then separate them, uh, you know, as they become separated. So a new character should usually start off as part of someone else's POV and then let the camera shift to, to that person in a new chapter or a new scene, usually in a new chapter. Uh, I've also had a lot of fun with introducing a character uh, from their POV. Like a so, mysterious someone, suddenly the scene is from the point of view of someone who is mysterious and skulking around the corner, and then eventually we'll find out who they are after they confront the rest of the cast. But generally what I like to do is, is have them show up as, as seemingly secondary characters until they become crucial to the story, and then they, then they get their own chapter.
0: I think that's probably the best way to do it, to make sure the reader is really interested in that. POV when it shifts to the new character like oh yeah you kind of tease me about that character in chapter one and I am curious to see what they're doing that said I've done it both ways uh so I think uh, like in my side, you know and it's sometimes the story is gonna insist that uh, you do it that way like in my Star Kingdom series sci-fi their character there's three different POV characters in the first book and they're starting out in different solar systems so <laughs> it's a little bit you know it's a little bit tough uh, and I think that when you do do that you know, I would try not to make the chapters too long. Try not to like be away from the first character for too long. Be careful also with introducing too many POVs. If you do that, I would put your most compelling one in chapter one, and I mean try to make them all compelling. That's sort of a big thing. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of tough. It, you've risked. I feel like when I, I've had the best read through, honestly, in the series where it's just been the first person POV character and they're the only character in the series i think people get attached and they a place where they move to a different spot is a Possible place to put down the book. I uh, just be careful, especially of doing like a lot of POVs before you get back to the character that they liked, that they became attached from in the beginning. I, I've read books where usually this isn't like in critique books, not so much in professional stuff, but in epic fantasy where it's like chapter one, character, chapter two, different character in a different part of the world, three, a new character. And seriously, I remember there were like chapter seven was an, yet another character. I was like, dude, you cannot do this even in epic fantasy. They are not going to go on be on board with that. So, uh, again, I think that ideally Joe's way is best start with your main characters. Get, you might even do a two or three chapters, get people really into them before you start branching off. And, uh, ideally you set it up. So people are like ready to read that new character. All right, Andrea,
2: do you want to ask the next one? Yep. Um, John says, I've read a protagonist should be dealing with some inner conflict even before the inciting incident. Is that necessary? Does it help?
1: Uh, It isn't super necessary. You can have a disaster, pull someone out of their perfectly contented life. That's a pretty standard way to to, to tell a story. But I think if there's there's a lot of value in the challenges of the story, uh, you know, there's a lot of value in uncovering and the mirroring of struggles they already had. So uh, we often talk about a character should have flaws and sometimes those flaws are the internalized conflicts they have. So, yeah, uh, I, I think it's not a bad idea to have some internal conflicts.
0: I also don't think this is, I think this is a pretty good idea. Honestly, if only because it forces you to flesh out your protagonist's backstory for, for one thing, I've read books where a character is supposed to be in their forties, but they read like someone that just got out of college because it's like, they're, there's these 20 years that are just kind of, you know, did they do nothing in those years? It seems like not much happened. Um, so giving them some conflict or some baggage helps them feel more real because we all have our issues. And it doesn't have to be like somebody's stalking them or, or something super crazy. Uh, in my urban fantasy series, her day job, and most of the plots are fighting, you know, monsters and, and dealing with dragons and all these huge things. But coming into the story, she had this separation from her daughter and so there's this thing you know she's like regretted this and it's this thing she gets to work on in the course of the series while she's doing all these other things and i think that that has made mothers kind of connect with her as a character that otherwise they might not because you know if she didn't have, you know, I feel like most mothers are <laughs> especially like a teenage kid kind of understand all the the stuff she's going through. And so it can be giving them things that your readers might also be dealing with can really, uh, make them feel like real people and people that your readers identify with. So pick your conflict, <laughs> you know, something universal, uh, is, uh, always, you know, something that might draw people in. Okay going into rambling mode. I'm going to let
2: uh, Andrea answer this now. <laughs> and I'm going to play devil's advocate. I, I do agree with what they both said. Um, but another opinion is, I don't know, like I, while I was reading the question and thinking about my answer, I, I felt kind of like it fell in line with the advice that in order to have a solid romance story, both characters need to be lonely and unhappy. Um, sometimes you have somebody who's perfectly content with how their life is. And then something happens that disrupts their normal life. And that can be very interesting for readers as well. Um, another bit of advice that I got had a New York editor once tell me that in order to write a good fantasy, there needs to be elves. And I've never written a book that had elves in it. Um, and my fantasy is done fine. Um, a lot of the time books will gradually uncover something a character has been struggling with since before the book began, but a lot of great books, like I said, have the reader and character discovering together what the inner conflict will be, especially if they're perfect or normal life gets disrupted, or if the character doesn't realize it's a problem and that he or she has to deal with it. Um, okay. So I'm going to go ahead and ask the next question. These are other holdover questions, basically that we didn't have time to answer in previous Q and a episodes. Um, so Debbie asks, uh, I was just listening to the newsletter podcast number two and it brought up a question. If you price your pre-order lower and then increase the price on launch day, how early do you need to change the price on Amazon so that the price increase will happen on the day you select? So I wasn't entirely sure what she was talking about in the on um, by 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 the day you select. Uh I usually change the price the day of and then it usually takes place sometime when it goes live. It takes place sometimes within an hour or two and sometimes it takes up to 48 hours. Um unfortunately you can't control what Amazon does unless it's a countdown deal um which wouldn't be applicable for a new release
1: yeah the timing on price changes is extremely unreliable Uh, i will note that you should be extremely careful if you're going to do this don't try to you know bullseye it so that the price goes up at you know 1201 because if the price rises before the launch then all of your pre-order people suddenly got charged the uh, the new price and that's that's a disaster for, uh, you know, for people who thought they, they were getting something for 99 cents to suddenly get something for four ninety nine. So yeah, I would normally wait uh, until like the next day and then just sort of eat the fact that three or four days of uh, two or three days of people might get the, the pre-order price. Mm-hmm. It's better than uh, uh, disappointing your super fans by charging them too much.
0: I feel like Amazon locks you in like four days before anyway, and you can't go in and change it. Isn't that right? Am I imagining that as if it's a pre-order? Yeah. Right. Once you put your pre-order file up, you can kind of mess with stuff until four days before, and then you have to just leave it until it's actually live. Um, but yeah, I would just wait until it's actually live that day. And at that point you can raise the price. And what you can do, usually Amazon changes it within a couple hours, but what you can do is just don't be super specific in your newsletter so you're not breaking any promises. Just say, I'm going to, you know, it's 99 cents for the pre-order and then during release week or, on, you know, the release week we're raising the price to full price, so get it now if that's your goal. All right, next question is from Angie. I finished my first novel a few years ago and then panicked about publishing it. I recently split the book into three separate books. I published my first one on Wattpad to see if I could get any interest. Last weekend, I published the last part. It has been up a little over three weeks and has 29 unique readers. One person finished and asked for the sequel. As this is still the unedited version, is there any harm in putting all three up on Wattpad while I get them ready for an editor?
2: My answer is, uh, I don't think so. That's basically what Wattpad was created for. Uh, The only time you want to avoid doing it is if you're in KU. Uh, Wattpad readers expect rough drafts. But you'll also want to recognize that the occasional correction and feedback is going to come in, though. So if that doesn't bother you or or if you uh, look forward to that or want that, then yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I think this is fine. It could be a good way to build an audience and and build your newsletter for when you eventually have releases that are releasing directly to the storefronts.
0: I think it's fine. Also, just remember that later, if you enroll them in Kindle Unlimited and you're going exclusive with Amazon, that you will need to go back and take down the stories on Wattpad. You might want to take down two and three down uh, later anyway, if you're going to sell them. Also, I don't know if I feel like there's probably less of an issue now, but Agents, publishers, if you decide to go that route, they want to know if something was previously published and also on the internet counts generally. So you might want to disclose that if you actually get interested. And I don't know if that's what you're doing. I I feel like most of our readers are planning, or listeners are planning to self-publish, but uh, just keep that in mind. It will probably count to someone who's previously published. But I feel like it's not going to be that much of a ding anymore in this day and age. Um, Okay, passing it to Joe for the next question.
1: Uh, Eve asks, what should I look for to determine if an automation sequence is or isn't working? Thanks.
2: Uh, um, So I'm wondering if she's asking about the technical aspect, uh, like is it actually delivering, in which case, you know, you'd sign up, or using a couple of different email addresses, hosted on different email providers, and see what happens. I don't. I'm guessing that's not what she's talking about, though. So, um, otherwise, you would compare your opens and clicks from regular emails with your auto ones. So, if you send out an email to your main list with the same subject line, how does that compare to with how? your automation sequences and then test things out as much as you can try different subject lines and different ways to pre- present the content and do it both through an automation sequence and through your regular email that you send on a regular basis. And also recognize that automation sequences sometimes get sent to different places like the promotions folder versus the inbox or promotions part of your inbox versus the main part of your, in, of the Gmail inbox and your weekly email could end up in a different spot. So just keep that in mind while you're testing things out.
1: In um, the two email services I've used, you can yeah, you can you can definitely check the click uh, the click rate and the open rate. And uh, at least in my case, the click rate and open rate for an automation sequence is usually astronomical because it, often this is how you're serving up the perk that you got somebody to sign up for in the first place. And also, people tend to to sort of sort of follow through on them a lot more. Than, uh, than regular emails just because they're structured as a follow-through thing. So you'll probably see a pretty good spike. And then uh, if you see a slow decline or even really a sharp decline, chances are things are doing okay. A slower decline obviously is better. But, yeah, just check the – in the same way that you would check the, the effectiveness of a regular newsletter, you can do that with your automation search sequences.
0: I would just add that you can use books to read or another, uh, bit.ly or whatever you like to track the links. I like books to read since it will allow them to go to any store that they want to download it from. If that's what I'm doing, um, you know, most email lists too also have some kind of track tracking links that you can use, but, and then you're not really allowed to use affiliate links from Amazon anyway, but. You know, that's up to you. Uh, that is the best way to know if the email is converted to sales of the book. Uh, all the other stuff, all you can tell is they clicked the link. You can't necessarily... Uh, and if you're sending them to BookFunnel or something, you can tell if they downloaded it. But if you're trying to make a sale, the, the affiliate links are the best for figuring out if, the, if you're
2: uh, effectively selling to people. Go ahead, Andrea. Let's see. GB asks, when choosing to inform your readers about your personal life in your newsletter, what do you include if you choose to write under a pen name?
0: I wouldn't make up a personal life or say anything that is essentially a lie. Otherwise, if one people find, if one day people find out it's a pen name, they might feel betrayed. I, I've certainly seen fluff about this in particular when they think the author is one gender and, or one sex. And then it turns out they're another. Like if they thought their, uh, their favorite romance author was a woman and they feel betrayed because a guy was writing to them. Um, you know, I just think that that's not necessarily a big deal. Uh, one sex instead of the other <laughs> writing in a different genre, but, um, the the lying thing it can be uncomfortable for you and then the readers again could feel betrayed so i would just share things that aren't about you specifically uh, or that are about you but they could work for like if I was writing as my pen name, I'd probably still talk about my dogs. You know, everybody has dogs, so it's not like oh my gosh, dogs are going to be the thing that gives away your secret pen name. Now, if you sh- use the same pictures of the dogs, <laughs> it's like those are the same three dogs that my other favorite author has. That might give it away,
2: but you know, you you probably don't need to go into depth on anything too personal in email. Yeah. What Lindsay said, um, also recognize there's a thin line between sharing enough and sharing too much, um, too much. And you run the risk of growing fans of your personal life more than your books. And then how much you share depends on why you're writing under a pen name. I write under a pen name because I was doing this before, and I was already with a publisher before I met Nolan. And it just made sense to keep it under my maiden name. Um, and, um, Yeah. Like I was saying, there's, you want to make sure that you're sharing stuff. That's not a lie. Like Lindsay says, you pick something out of your life that you're comfortable talking about. And then you just stick to that and recognize that sharing too much can lead to people becoming fans of that aspect of your life over your books, which they're going to tell you up and down, they love your books, but you know, you can't always trust your readers.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You tread a tricky line when your pen name is a character uh, so I would make you know, my pen name about personality and interest rather than personal details. Cause generally speaking, you're, you're picking a pen name for a different genre or different sort of content. So if you talk a lot about that genre and content, you can remain engaging without having to go into exactly who or what you are.
0: All right. One last question. I think we're actually getting through everything in our file today, guys. This is amazing. This one is from Romy. I've got three books to launch in rapid release. My question is whether I should release the box set alongside them. I read that advice to do so to catch binge readers, but I seem to recall that on your podcast, you advised waiting a year before releasing the box set to rejuvenate the series. Any thoughts?
2: Yeah. Um, if the box set is the same price as the three books would be all together. So I'm not going to do math. Never mind. I was going to just do a math, mathematical example. Nope. If they three books are, are equal the same price of the box set would equal, then releasing at the same time isn't a problem. But if it's a discount, even a small one, 50 cent, even a dollar, it, it frustrates readers. Um, and you can even tell them that it's a discount and it would still frustrate people who didn't know that you know, there was a better option available when they bought the single books. Um, but in, you because you can't possibly tell everyone and most people won't let you know they're annoyed. I would just, if it's, if it's a discount, I would wait six months to a year before releasing the box set.
1: I agree. I would wait. I think it has more value as an additional future release than a simultaneous one. That's one of the things I like best about box sets is it's essentially a free release, like a release with virtually no additional work. And if you, If you, uh, you know, delay the release, then you don't run the risk of having two identical products on sale with two different prices. It causes confusion at the least and discontent at best.
0: And it's also going to kind of dilute your odds of uh, ranking if you're trying to rank in your categories, because suddenly some people are like, oh, I could buy the box set or "Oh, I could buy the three books and, uh... You end up with neither of them ranking when possibly if they were focused on one you might have ended up in the top 100 for one of your categories. So unless there are extenuating circumstances like I actually had to do this with my Star Kingdom series. The audiobook was coming out from the publisher in an omnibus so I felt I had to put like the books one through three ebook omnibus out there too, just so there'd be a match. It'd be a matchup. Otherwise it's, it's a little confusing that, uh, the audiobook they won't match to book one if it's an omnibus. So that's a, a little bit confusing. Um, but I, I didn't really want to do that. Cause like Joe said, I really like to wait until the series is done. And then, Things have tailed off and I'm like, Oh, I can launch this box set maybe at a discount and treat it like a brand new release. Uh, Amazon, especially will basically never give you a better chance and and more potential to kind of having this great launch juice, then you get it released. If only because there's no iffy sales history that you have to overcome that could be dragging you down because when your book with your omnibus was nine ninety nine, maybe you're only selling three copies a month and you suddenly you're like, yeah, I want to really run a sale on uh, 99 cents and, and try to get people to, you know, if you do three more books in the series to buy those or if you did a, a side series or something that you want a spin-off series that you want to get them into. Suddenly you're having to overcome the fact that your book has barely been selling for the last year. And it's just easier to start from nothing and not have that history to overcome. So it's another tool when your series has slowed down. So I would wait. There's really actually no reason, except with like something weird, like the audiobook uh, thing I said, to have the full price uh, omnibus out there at the same time as the individual ebooks uh, if you're not doing a discount or there's not some reason you really want them to be steered toward the omnibus. So those are my thoughts on that. Do you guys have any last thoughts? Shall we go? Anybody have a joke? No, no that jokes. <laughs> I have a migraine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andrea votes for ending the show. Excellent. <laughs> All right, thank you for listening, everyone. Hopefully, something was vaguely helpful, or uh, and if not, you know, <laughs> maybe next time <laughs> we'll try not to disappoint again. And thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes and I will link to the Gardner Hype cycle uh in them, or you can leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. Facebook group is still around if you want to search for us there. Six figure authors, come on in. we we have over a thousand people. We have like at least seven people that post regularly. I don't know. Did you guys know Facebook changed things around this past couple weeks and now you're either logged in as your page or your profile, and now that I'm usually just logged into my page because that's the main thing I do, I have to consciously log in as my profile in order to check the Facebook group and see if anybody's pinged me there. So I'm even less likely to have a clue and notice things on Facebook. No, Andrea says my migraine is hurting. Shut up, Lindsay. Oh, I, end was the just, show. <laughs> I was
2: just going to say Facebook—they they change things frequently enough for me to hate the platform. <laughs> All right. Well, on
0: that note, <laughs> as we are about to get sued by Facebook, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.
1: Still so long, everybody.